Paul writes in verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Paul's letter to Titus. We believe that this letter has been important for Fisherville Church in this time, this season. We pray as we conclude this letter, as we conclude the pastoral epistles, that your spirit would edit my plans, my purposes this morning. We pray that your spirit would illumine me and illumine your people to hear the word of Christ today. We ask this for your son's sake. Amen. You know, we sang joyful, joyful, we adore thee this morning. And I was thinking about that. You know, there's some 400 times, close to 400 times in the Bible that the word joy or joyful is found. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that joy is, if not the, it is certainly a crucial gauge on the dashboard of the Christian life. When the warning light comes on, in other words, when your joy is low, that's a danger sign that you're in need of a rescue because You have misplaced hope. You have misplaced identity, misplaced all. Think of it this way. Coal miners know that dangerous gases can seep in the tunnels, okay, that are silent and they come in secretly, but they can kill. You have, for instance, carbon monoxide, which can asphyxiate, or you have uh, gases like methane that explodes, As recent as 2006 in West Virginia in a coal mine, some 12 people were killed by a coal mine explosion. But in the early days of coal mining, they figured out a cheap and low-tech way to deal with these secret and dangerous gases. Canaries. Canaries. Uh, Canaries' metabolism is very sensitive to impure air. So they would bring these canaries into the coal mines, and as long as the canaries 
are chirping. As long as they are singing, everything is okay. But when the canaries stop singing, that's a danger sign. Something is wrong. You know, Christian awe, Christian joy is like that singing canary. One of the first consequences of sin, in fact. One of the first consequences of sin or uh, you could say bad teaching, bad doctrine or idolatry or unbelief is that your heart stops singing. That's one of the first consequences uh, that something is wrong. Your heart stops singing. And when that happens, that's a warning sign. That there's a need for an all rescue. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Paul knows that that's a very real danger. It's a danger even for the Christian. And when this happens, not only does it eclipse God's glory in what He has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, by living the life we could not live in our place, dying the death we deserve in our place, being raised from the grave... For us, in our place, not only does it eclipse the all-sufficient work of Jesus and eclipse the glory of what the Holy Spirit provides for us even now, what it does is it hamstrings, it restricts our capacity to be a witness. It hamstrings our capacity to do good works for God's glory as God's demonstration community. That's what Francis Schaeffer called the church, God's demonstration community. The world looks at us and they should, be, they should see joy. They should see joy-empowered, gospel-empowered good works. And that is a witness to them. And our witness to the world is what Titus 3 is all about. When awe, that is vertical awe, awe of God, awe of the Son, Jesus Christ, all of the gospel, when it has captured your heart, good works for God's name will fill your schedule. In fact, it will be your schedule. You won't need the church to schedule ministry for you. Your life will be one big ministry. That's what Paul is doing here. He's on an all rescue. He's reminded us of our past State In verse 3, we saw this last week, he said, we were once foolish and disobedient. But notice verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He's seeking to awaken us, to stir us from our, from our spiritual slumbers. It's so easy for us to become dull to ultimate things, to eternal things, to the things of God. So he's reminding you, here's where you were. But then God, our Savior, appeared. And he saved us. He saved us not because of your works. He wasn't impressed with you. He saved us because of his mercy. He says, But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now that is... Glorious truth. But even though every believer is regenerated, 
Every believer is renewed in his or her spirit when we stand before God in the day of judgment. It will not be our imperfect works that we do that will be the ground of our pardon. Recognize that. Because even though verse 3 used to be true of us, is no longer true of us, there are embers of verse 3 that are still very present in our lives. Okay? There are still embers of the old man that are still true of us. And God, being perfect in righteousness, requires perfect righteousness. Okay? And so, if... The righteousness of God is our biggest problem. Paul would tell us the righteousness from God is our sure hope. And that brings us to verse 6 and 7, the ground of our hope, the ground of the gospel. So he says we were washed, regenerated, and renewed by the Spirit, verse 5, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now keep in mind, let me remind you, Paul is not giving you this information to scratch your theological itch. He is not writing a theological work here. In other words, his goal is not to write out a systematic theology. His goal is to wake you up to your dullness, to stir your affections. That's what he's doing here because of our real tendency to grow dull to the things of God. Now, I want you to note here that, first of all, he calls God our Savior in verse 4. We saw that last week. The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. In verse 6, he calls Jesus Christ his Savior. So in verse 4, he's referring to the Father. And in verse 6, he's referring to the Son. So it's not the first time he's done that. If you look in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, At the proper time he's manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted, notice, by the commandment of God our Savior. And then in verse 4, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And then if you look in, in, in chapter 2, verse 10, again, we are to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And then in verse 13, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important? Is it the Father or is it the Son who's our Savior? Yes. But what we see here is that there is equality in the Godhead. The Father and the Son, and we would add the Spirit, are equal in essence and glory. They are distinct in their functions and roles. They are distinct persons in the Godhead. In other words, the Father doesn't become the Son who then becomes the Spirit. The Godhead is Father, Son, and Spirit simultaneously. But you see that all three persons are involved in our salvation. And so we see, first of all, that Jesus here is our Savior. God is our Savior. And, and in verse 14 of chapter 2, he tells us how he saved us. He gave himself. 
He gave himself. That's how he saved us. You didn't save yourself. You didn't even participate in your salvation. He didn't consider your righteousness. He didn't consider your works. And that's a good thing. Because if he did, no one would be saved. How did he save us? He saved us by giving himself. He gave himself for us. To redeem us from all lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And so what Jesus Christ did is he gave himself. And in giving himself, he did what you and I could not do. He came and fulfilled all the terms of the law. And then he died on the cross, taking the wrath and judgment of God that you and I deserved. And then the Spirit comes and renews us, regenerates us. But our salvation is more than just regeneration. It's more than renewal. It also, he says, includes justification. Notice again in verse 6. He says, He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs. So we are justified and we become heirs. That's the word for adoption. That's the language of adoption. Where we're received in the number and have all the, the privileges of sonship. So what is this justification he is referring to here? Well, you may have heard Billy Graham say many times, it's just if I never sinned. But there's more to it than that. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Now, when we say free grace, what we're saying is, there was nothing in us that compelled him to pour out his grace on us. Sometimes I, I, I do a kind act towards someone because I feel like they deserve it. Okay? We, we, our church so wondrously and wonderfully served uh, the nation family this week because we felt like they deserved it. Uh, this is a wonderful and important and a family to our church. And so we did a kind act towards them because they deserved that. But when God was kind to us, God justified us. We didn't deserve it. In fact, uh, Paul says, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, perhaps for a good man one would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what is justification? It's an act of God's free grace. Nothing compelled him to pour out his grace on us except his own love. It's an act of God's free grace where he pardons us of all sins. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you're committing even now as you hear me preach, and every sin you will ever commit, he pardons you of your sin if you're in Jesus Christ. And he accepts us as righteous in his sight. Except and only for the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us, it's credited to us and received by faith alone. In other words, if we are in Jesus Christ today by faith, and you are in Christ if you're a believer, you've been united to him. It's called union with Christ. In Christ, we have his righteousness. He is our righteousness. When God sees us, he does not see your filthy rags of righteousness. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son. And he pardons us and he accepts us as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness 
of his son. And do you understand the implications of that? It's remarkable. Paul wants you to understand that so you're not bored and dull and cold in your walk. Here's the implications of this. If you're in Christ this morning, okay? If you're in Christ this morning, in God's sight, you have kept the whole law. Every moment of your life. Every moment of your life. You have loved the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself every moment of your life. That's what it means to be righteous in His sight. That's what it means to be justified. And that's why He can receive you as sons and daughters in adoption. And so justification means that God declares us righteous because of the all-sufficient work of the Son. Regeneration, which we looked at last week, is actually where God makes us righteous through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that important? Here's why it's important. The Holy Spirit regenerates us, but we're not perfected in this life by the Holy Spirit. And so if God's standard is perfection, if the ground of our hope is our regeneration, we're all in a hopeless place. But regeneration is a real evidence that a person has been saved. There is new life. There's new life. There's, there's a new love. There's new interest, okay, in the things of God. There's a new love for the Word. There's a new love for people. There's new repentance. That's regeneration. But that's not the ground of your hope. The ground of your hope is in your justification through Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And so we do not ever confuse regeneration and justification. But we never want to separate them either. Those who've been regenerated have been justified. Those who have been justified have been regenerated. And I want you to note how the, the attributes just kind of mount up here. Notice he says, when the goodness of God appeared, verse 4, the loving kindness of God appeared. Uh, verse 4, verse 7, we're justified by grace. And then you see this language of mercy. We are saved by his mercy. Verse 6. Now, why is this important? Well, it's his goodness that caused him to save us. It wasn't yours. It was His goodness. It was His loving kindness that caused Him to save you. It was His mercy that caused Him to save you. It was His grace that caused Him to save you. And everything God is, He is for you. Okay? He is good for you. He is loving and kind for you. He is merciful for you. He is gracious for you. Remember who you used to be. Just pick at verse 3. But God has been gracious. God has been merciful. God has been kind to you. He has saved you through His Son. Again, what is Paul doing here? He's seeking to rescue your all. He wants you to have joy. 
And so he gives us the ground of the gospel here. Notice as well the centrality of the gospel in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. Now what is the saying? It's verses 4 to 7. Verses 4 to 7 is one sentence in the original language. It is perhaps the greatest gospel sentence in the entire Bible. And he said, that saying is trustworthy. You can bank on it. You may not feel saved because of dullness, because you're cold, because you're bored. But if you've been regenerated by the Spirit, if you're looking to Jesus as your hope, you've been justified. You've been adopted as a son or daughter of God. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you, Titus, to insist on these things. What's he telling Titus here? This is what you preach. Teachers, this is what you teach. This is what you major on. You insist on these things. Because verses 4 to 7 are so counter to our thinking. We are works-oriented to the core. We, the law of God has been written on our hearts, but because of sin, we are hardwired for legalism. Okay? And so we think that actually God receives our good works. There's people here today. You're just absolutely convinced when you die, God is going to look at you and go, you're a pretty good guy. You know, you didn't really, you never killed anybody. You were never in ISIS. Come on in. I'm just going to sweep everything else under the mat. That's the kind of God I am. That's a terrible God. That's a terrible God. The God of the Bible is perfect in holiness and righteousness. You don't want him to wink at sin. A God who winks at sin is a God who gives us no hope. And what Paul is telling us here, he's telling us, you insist on these things so that your people can understand the gospel, so that they would live by the gospel. And I love the simplicity of this. He says, you insist on these things, verse 8, so that those who have believed in God... I love the simplicity of that. Those who have believed in God. That is, those who've been regenerated. Those who have been renewed. Those who have been justified. Those who have become heirs. That is, adopted sons and daughters of God. They are those who have believed in God. That they may be careful to devote themselves to good works. What's the evidence that we believe? It's our good works. It's not your good works that will be the ground of your pardon in the day of judgment. Your good works will be the fruit, okay, of your pardon. But he says, so that they would do these things. Good works are generated and empowered by the gospel. As the gospel takes root, that's verses 4 to 7, your people will reflect on those things, they will meditate on those things, and their all will be rescued, and out of that will come good works. In fact, he says, these good works are excellent and profitable for people. Who are the people? First of all, it's for the people who are doing the good works. 
it benefits you to live a life of gospel-empowered good works. It's the way God designed you to live. That's the life of human flourishing. As Seth said earlier today, God who created the heart knows how that heart best functions. And he says these things are excellent for us when we live a life of gospel-empowered, gospel-centered good works for the purposes of being a witness to the world. Not only is it beneficial to us, it's beneficial for the people who observe our lives. So they see us and they recognize, I don't have what this guy has. I don't have what this lady has. I want what this person has. I want what she has. And oftentimes that is how God saves people. As Dwight L. Moody one time, he said, one out of a hundred people read their Bibles And 99 out of 100 read Christians. Okay? And so when we, these good works are absent because of misplaced awe, because of joylessness in the Christian life, we're misrepresenting God. That is a terrible, terrible crime and sin against God. Now, when he says these, talks about these good works in verse 8, he's not referring to what Dan Doriani calls Nike Christianity. Nike Christianity is just do it, all right? Just, just by your grit, do good works. That's not what he's referring to. He's referring to spirit-wrought, gospel-shaped, gospel-empowered, all-inspired good works. That's what he's referring to. This is the main theme of Titus. Good works for the sake of the gospel in contrast to the false teachers. Now, I want you to note before we leave this section, verses 4 to 7 requires a triune God. Okay? If God was not triune, He couldn't save us. Salvation requires a God who is Trinity. It is the Father who saves us, who pours out His loving kindness on us, His grace on us through the Son who takes our place in His life and death and resurrection and ascension. And then the Spirit comes upon us and regenerates and renews and washes us. God is triune. And if He was not, we could not be saved. Again, Paul wants us to be in awe of the true and living God. And he says, you fix on these things. You fixate on these things. But in contrast to the things we're to fixate on, there are certain things that are not profitable. Look in verse 9. But avoid. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Certainly there was conflict in the culture at Crete. It was a pagan culture. Okay, but if you notice that in all three of the pastoral epistles, Paul's concern has not been the culture. Sometimes in our world, we get so concerned about the culture, and certainly it it is concerning. But we need to major in what Paul majors on. 
What Paul is more concerned about is the compromise from within the church. Okay? The culture will be the culture. It's, it's, it's a lost and dying world. We can't expect the culture to act Christianly. Paul's concern is the compromise from within the church. And each of these four errors here in verse 9 have been brought up in 1 Timothy. Two of them, in fact, have been brought up in 2 Timothy. What does that tell us? That he's dealing with the same issues in all three letters. And it's hard for us to really grasp what they are. Not even the scholars and the pastoral epistles can fully understand all that's being said. But there are some really important points we can draw from these warnings. First of all, preachers and teachers, and we have many teachers here, are to be known not only by what we advocate, but by what we avoid. We're to avoid those discussions that don't fall within the pattern of sound doctrine. Chapter chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. There's a lot of discussions we could have that are just worthless. They do not fall within the pattern of sound teaching. Which we know from, for instance, 1 Timothy 1, sound doctrine which is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Or chapter 2 of Titus which speaks about this grace which has appeared bringing salvation. And we know from 1 Timothy 1, Paul says the goal of our instruction is love. Okay? And so those discussions that do not center on this sound doctrine, which is in accordance with the gospel of grace, and which cannot achieve the goal of love. He says, preachers and teachers, you avoid those discussions. Secondly, we see from these warnings that truth matters. What we believe truly matters. You know, our culture unwittingly believes in objective and exclusive truth in the physical realm, no matter what they might deny. For instance, they know there's a world of difference between taking uh, cyanide or an aspirin for a headache. They do know that truth matters in the physical realm. What they do deny is that truth is objective in the spiritual realm. And yes, all truth is God's truth. But what Paul is speaking about here is the kind of truth that centers on the saving work of the triune God. That's what the entire passage here matters, uh, what he's emphasizing. And so don't get caught up into discussions that don't center on the main thing the saving work of the triune God. And thirdly, God didn't give us truth so that philosophers and theologians could just speculate about their speculations about God. The Word of God is given to us to give us God and to save us by this God. That's why the Word of God is given to us. It's given to us to change us, to transform us, to save us. And theology that does not promote that, he says, verse 9, is useless. It's unprofitable and worthless. 
worthless. Consequently, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, thankfully we've not seen that here. That doesn't mean this verse isn't important because, again, uh, the Word of God can be used as an antibiotic or a vaccination. We haven't seen that here, but this can vaccinate us, all right? For the person who does that, after warning him once and then twice, it's the three-strike rule, have nothing more to do with him. You exercise church discipline on people who are divisive over speculative, speculative discussions that do not center on the truths that are laid out in verses 4 to 7 about the triune God and His saving activity. Paul is concerned that the church not become a free thought society. There are churches out there that are free thought societies. They're debate clubs, okay? No, the, the local church does not exist to debate. It's not to debate over absolute truth. Uh, the, the church exists to preach the truth, absolutely. That's what Paul is telling us. And when this word takes hold, okay, it produces the kind of faith we see at the end of Titus. We see these models of devotion, men of whom the gospel has taken hold. Look with me in verses 12 to 13. We see those so devoted to this gospel. He says, when I send Artemis, Articacus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer. And Charlie, you might be interested to know this is the only Christian lawyer in the Bible. The New Testament had one and we have one. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. How do you get the message? How does our church get the message to Fisherville, to Louisville, to the nation, and to the nations? The same way the Apostle Paul did it. And verses 12 to 14 gives us a glimpse how through friends devoted to good works. Through friends who have been captured by the gospel. Look at these names. When I send Artemis. This is the only time Artemis is mentioned in the Bible. We don't know anything about Artemis except one thing. He was a friend of Paul. He loved the gospel. He was a great commission man. That's all we know about him. And then he discusses, he brings up uh, Tychicus. Now, we, we do know more about Tychicus. In fact, in Colossians chapter 4, he's described as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. We know from Ephesians that he was sent with the letter that we know as Ephesians by Paul to the church. We know from Colossians that he was sent with Colossians. And it's likely possible that he's going to be the one who delivers Paul's letter to Titus. And so Tychicus was a mailman. He was a UPS delivery guy. 
That's what we know about him. Other than that, that's all we know about Tychicus. And then there's Zenos the lawyer. This is the only place that Zenos is mentioned. The only Christian lawyer in Scripture. And then Apollos. We know a little bit more about Apollos. We know that Apollos was mighty in the Scriptures, Acts chapter 18. That he was a powerful proclaimer of the gospel, a man filled with the Spirit. That's all we know about him, though. The main thing we know about him is not his great exploits or that he had a great publishing deal or something. We know that he was a man who was captured by the gospel. That's what we know about Apollos. And again, I love these list of names at the end of Paul's letters. I love it. You just kind of read over them on your reading plan, don't you? That's the tendency. But there is so much to teach us here when we read about these names. Here's what captured me this week. We know little to nothing about these men. And that's due to the fact they did nothing in the world to make them famous or significant. All right? And yet, they're esteemed by an apostle. That's important in our culture because we think the real important stuff are the things people are doing on television or in print, okay, or in the movies or in the sports world. Those are the people whose lives matter. These people we know little to nothing about, and yet they're esteemed by the Apostle Paul. This tells us You don't have to make your mark in order to have a fruitful life, okay? You don't have to do that. Most of the people who've made their mark, in fact, are forgotten anyway. I mean, you can't tell me who won the MVP of the Super Bowl in Super Bowl V. He was the center of the universe when he won that. Super Bowl MVP, and you you probably, if I gave you his name, you wouldn't know who he was. Most people who've made their mark in this world are forgotten. We see here what the Apostle Paul esteems, men who are captured by the gospel. And they just did small things faithfully. What Paul is telling us here, in fact, Paul tells us how to make our lives count in verse 14. And here it is. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Nothing about having a megachurch pulpit. There's nothing about having a publishing deal here. There's nothing about being famous, popular. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. In fact, that word, devote themselves, is found in verse 8. He says, the saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is the sixth time Paul has brought up good works. Look in chapter 1, verse 16. He's talking about these false teachers. They profess to know God. They deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Then you look in chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourselves in all respects 
to be a model of good works. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, we're looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Then in verse 8, to devote themselves to good works. And here, verse 14. And note the reason. Note the reason. So as to help cases of urgent need. We live in a broken world. And how's God going to fix a broken world? Fundamentally through the Son of God. But instrumentally through the people of God who've been captured by the gospel of God doing good works for the name of God. And we'll be held accountable for that. We will. And so that you won't be unfruitful. Do you want your life to matter? Unfruitful lives don't matter in the end. This is the key to the fruitful life. You'll hear people who make just foolish decisions, who are counseled by people. You deserve to be happy. Well, let me just tell you, if happiness is your ultimate goal, you will never find it. But God does want you to be fruitful. And out of that fruitfulness comes happiness and comes joy. But you don't get it by disobeying Jesus. You get it by being captured by His mercy, His grace. You get it through an all-rescue. And out of that coming the good works that lead to a fruitful life. What Paul is telling us. Of course, the fruitful life is simply a life that's covered by grace. And that brings us to the last verse of Titus. All who are with me send greetings to you. Paul was never alone. He lived in community with the redeemed. Paul recognized that an isolated Christian is cold and stale and ultimately in disobedience to God. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. The letter ends as it began. Grace. I love that. In fact, let me give you this thought. All of Paul's letters without exception. How many are there? Thirteen. There's thirteen letters of Paul in the New Testament. All of them begin with grace and all of them end with grace. In fact, we're going to be picking up in Peter in January. Peter begins with grace. It ends with grace. After Peter, in the not so far future, we're going to go to the book of the Revelation. Revelation begins with grace and it ends with grace. And it's not just grace to Titus. He says, grace be with you all. Plural. He's talking to the church. 
He's speaking there to the church at Crete. And he is speaking to the church at Fisherville. In other words, as you put this letter away, and as you leave Fisherville today, grace be with you. Grace as you go home to a sick child or a sick spouse. Grace be with you as you perhaps are struggling in an estranged relationship. Grace with you as you go to work and face all the struggles of life in the workplace. Jealousies, lust, fears, uncertainty. Grace as you turn on the television or you open up your computer and go on the internet. Sufficient, all sufficient, all inspiring grace. Grace as you see your lost neighbor who needs to hear the gospel. Grace be with you all. This is what we've learned from Titus. And this is what we've learned from the pastoral epistles. We've also learned of the importance of the body of Christ. God's grace comes to us through the Son of God. He is the only mediator between God and man. God the Spirit is not at work where Jesus isn't at work, okay? He's not at work in other religions. You say, that sounds narrow-minded. Well, all truth is narrow. Let's just get over that. No one ever accuses a mathematician for being narrow-minded to say 2 plus 2 equals 4. There's one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And grace comes to us through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God. But He works through horizontal channels. And the primary way He mediates that grace to us is through the body of Christ. We need each other. You you show me someone who's isolated himself or herself from the body of Christ, and I will show you a joyless, awless Christian. We've seen the importance of the body of Christ. And that's why the profitable, the fruitful life can only be found by gospel-driven, awe-inspiring good works in the church. We've also seen 1 Timothy. The emphasis was on protecting the gospel. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus so that you can teach certain men not to teach strange doctrine. We saw the emphasis in 2 Timothy was to preach the gospel. Preach the word in season and out of season. The emphasis in Titus has been on practicing the gospel, the good works of the Christian. But this is an exercise of all, okay? It's an exercise of joy, not grit, not willpower. How's your joy gauge today? Is your heart singing? Let's learn from the canaries. Let's learn from the Apostle Paul. Let's pray.